us be faithful to the work he's given us to do, we, we should be faithful in that. But our value is not rooted in the outcomes because the outcomes are beyond our control. Our value is rooted in the fact that we belong to the Lord. What's up, JR? Hey, Doug. How you doing? I'm doing well. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. So as pastors, we talk a lot about keeping sanity. And I remember you telling me a story just a, a few weeks ago um, about sheep and sanity. And uh, I, I feel like it'd just be really important for the pastors listening in to, to hear this this metaphor and this story. Yeah, we, you know, we, we, in the 23rd Psalm, you know, he anoints my head with oil, right? We say that, and I've always read that and understood that as like, you know, the Messiah, right? The anointed one, like he's, he's welcoming me, which is great. But the more I dug into that, the more I began to realize that that's got a, a deeper meaning there. There's figurative language for God keeping the psalmist healthy. And what I found out is that sheep can get caught, their head caught in briars and they can die trying to get untangled from the briars. But even more, there are these terrible flies that torment sheep. And they, what they do is they lay eggs in the sheep's nostrils and then it turns into worms and it drives the sheep um, and it goes into their ears as well. And it drives these sheep mad because I mean, no hands, right? You're not going to stick your hoof hoof in your ear. And and so it drives them mad because they can't get this out of their head, out of their ears, out of their nose. And so they just beat themselves against a uh, a big rock or a fence post or something. And, uh, and as a result of that, it just, sometimes they, they are physically or even neurologically harmed. Mm. And, uh, and so the, their eyes and their ears and their nose are susceptible to these, these insects that just torment them. Wow. And so what I found out is that a, a shepherd would take a jar of oil, pour it over the head of a sheep and would pour down into the eyes and the nose and the ears and would actually kill these little flies. Whoa. And what would happen is they because they're susceptible to these insects, the oil forms this this protection and and actually kills the insanity in their mm. head. Mm. And so when I heard that, I was just so moved that this is what God does for us. Yeah. And ministry can drive us insane sometimes. Mm. And we've heard stories sadly quite literally of driving pastors mad. And so this this invitation of God as our good shepherd to pour oil over our heads as a way of providing sanity mm. has stuck with me. I think that's the point of the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like even just that conversation to recognize that that ministry can, like there's these little things and I, I think they're kind of like lies that, that kind of can get into your head about who you are and about your worth and all this stuff. When they like develop, they really will drive you mad. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're right. This, this whole image of that, like I, it makes me think about, you know, what are the, what are the, the flies or the, the fleas mm. that are, that are kind of mm, present in my life in this moment? And what would it look like for the Lord to just anoint my head? And, yeah and like, it, it's funny because when I think of oil, it's very, it's like thick and it has this, like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of, it's not slimy, but it is sort of slimy, but even just the, like the thick presence of God, like his anointing going into the ears and just how that soothes. Like I remember, um, what a great word. Yeah. Yeah. There's this way of, um, you know, my my son has dry skin. Um, he's had it ever since he was a little guy. And so, uh, on my alarm still, he's 14. I don't have to do this anymore, but I kept this, this alarm, um, on my phone every night at six 30, my alarm goes off and Mm. it says lotion, Caleb. Uh, 
And it's like this beautiful reminder for me. Then the reason it left, I left it in there is like, I need to be lotioned by God. Like he uh, needs to soothe those oh, wounds good. and to have these spaces to, to, to just add soothing and comfort into my soul. Yeah. Oh, you asked a great question about, you know, what are the flies in ministry that, that really can torment us? But I also think, when are the times where I bash my I'm I just want to bash my Ooh. head against a rock, you know? When when are those moments where I just say, oh, gosh, I can't do this anymore, you know? I, I need help. And uh so anyway, I know it's the point of the podcast and the conversations that we have, the questions and the resources are an attempt yeah. to help. Uh we're not we're not the oil. Yeah. But in many ways, maybe we can be the jar yeah. that the Lord can use to tip over to pour his oil on the head of us as pastors. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I was always going to say, Jerry, you remind me of a cracked pot, but... Um... <laughs> we could take that a lot different. Are you saying I'm a crack pot? Are you saying maybe, I'm a crack pot? Maybe. <laughs> it's biblical. It says we're like broken vessels you put back together. Anyways, You're no, so but spiritual. I, I think it's... It, my sense is that there are probably people listening today that are in that space where they, mm-hmm. they just want to bash their head mm-hmm. against something mm-hmm. because they feel like they, they're, they're losing their sanity. Yeah. So Jared, like, what would you say would be something in just something real simple for a pastor? Maybe it's a posture or a prayer mm-hmm. um, or just a passage that might really help people other than the 23rd Psalm just might help pastors this morning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I just need to be reminded myself as a pastor mm. That Jesus wants to keep us sane in a world of insanity. And there's so much insanity in the world out there that I think maybe the best thing we can do, the healthiest thing we can be as pastors is inviting Jesus to make us sane. Guy Jatani is an ordained pastor in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. He earned a Master's of Divinity from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He served as a pastoral intern, hospital chaplain. He's also the former editor of Leadership Journal, uh, formerly Christianity Today's magazine to pastors. He got his undergrad degree from Miami University in Ohio, where he studied history and comparative religion with a special focus on Islam. But he studied Buddhism, Judaism, and early Christianity. He's a frequent speaker and author of many books, including Futureville, The Divine Commodity, With, and Immeasurable, Reflections on the Soul of Ministry in the Age of Church, Inc. He currently co-hosts a podcast with Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales called The Holy Post. He lives with his family in Wheaton, Illinois. Enjoy this conversation with my friend, Sky Jatani. Uh, Sky, thanks for being here with us on this podcast. Uh, I got We'll kick off with this question: What do you see as you look at the state of the church? And you've you've been able to be involved in a lot of different settings of ministry and your role with Leadership Journal when you were there. What are you seeing as you look over the state of the church in North America, specifically as it relates to church leaders? Are you encouraged? Discouraged? Not sure? What are you feeling? Because we don't want to. Um... We don't want to be Debbie Downers or not have faith that God isn't doing really good things. However, um, this sounds like a paradox, but I'm actually really encouraged by the level of pain and angst and struggle Hmm. that I think is going on. Um, 
my read is I think we are in the midst of probably one of the biggest shifts in ministry that we've seen in literally hundreds of years. But most pastors and church leaders aren't recognizing it. So on one hand, I'm super excited about the shift that's going on. And I think God is really doing something remarkable and different. But what discourages me is I don't think a bunch of leaders are recognizing what's actually happening so that they can positively engage it and go with that new work. So it's a it's a mixed bag of both. Let me press into that a little bit more because I, I agree with you, but I probably wouldn't use that they don't recognize it. There are times I've thought that pastors do, but they deny it because what would be required of them would be so costly they don't want to acknowledge it. So just well that 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 is a very good way of putting it. Yes. I look that yeah, I think that's absolutely true for a segment of leaders. I think there are a segment of leaders who don't recognize it. In other words, they're, they're in active denial yeah. um, or even passive denial. Uh, and then I think there's a segment that recognize it, like you said, but they don't want to deal with it. And then there's a segment that recognize it, but they're misdiagnosing. They're, they're not accurately assessing what it is that's happening. So you know, there's just a whole spectrum of what people are doing and where they are and Maybe it's a bell curve thing with the early adapters and then, you know, the stragglers. So if you think about, um, you know, we talk about conscious incompetence and, and unconscious incompetence, right? So those that don't even know what they don't know, if if leaders or pastors said, okay, Sky, I want to learn how to do this. Like, I want to like wake up to what you're talking about. What are ways that leaders can position themselves or even just be exposed to like, tell me, Sky, what you're talking about? How would they want to? How would they learn or go about leaning into that awareness that you're you're addressing? Yeah. Well, I think the first struggle, the first barrier. I forgot who said it. I believe I think it was the politician. Somebody said it's really difficult to get a man to understand something when his paycheck or salary depends on him not understanding it. So the first barrier is just the reality that for an awful lot of pastors, the, the their entire economic and community incentive is built around them not changing their model or not grasping this thing. Mm -hmm. So when you ask how do, if a church leader wants to understand what's going on, how do they begin to do it? They may say they want to understand what's going on, but the first thing they have to do is probably get enough distance mm -hmm. from the economic model that they are dependent on mm -hmm. in order to really have their eyes open mm -hmm. and their hearts open and their minds open to what it is that's occurring. Um, I find it much easier to have these conversations with people who are not receiving a paycheck from a local church, or at least not 100% of their paycheck from a local church. Uh, it doesn't mean there aren't really good leaders out there who are receiving a paycheck who, who get this. There are, but that's a huge barrier um, because you start down the road and they begin to put the dots together and realize the implications of what you're talking about. And it's really frightening and they want, they want to back off. So yeah. for me, that's the first thing is, can yeah. you figure out an economic way of supporting you or your family that allows you to hold the church with open hands? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Doug and I feel this, we hear this and I'm sure you have as well, where people say, I feel stuck. Like, I can't say that. Do you know what would happen at my church if mm. I said that? Exactly. You know, if I, there's no way I could do that. The elders would fire me. And uh, I assume that's, that's exactly in the vein of what you're talking about here. Totally. How do we break out of that then? Like, what are we doing if we're feeling <laughs> stuck? I mean, other than saying, well, I'm going to put my job on the line. You know, what are ways we can model little micro 
spaces of courage in the midst of that as pastors in North America? Uh, you know, if you're in a if you're in a fairly established church that isn't in financial distress that offers sabbaticals, paid sabbaticals for its leaders, taking a number of months off to just get away from it all and mm. use that time mm. to disconnect and really investigate that's a really wise use of that time, yeah, a safe great. bubble in which you can explore things. Um, and, and I realize that's a, that's a luxury for a lot of church leaders. Most mm. people don't have that. Mm. On the other side, if, um, if you are in a, in a bivocational setup or a place where most of your income is not coming from the church, you hopefully have the latitude to begin to rethink things and monkey with them. And then there's everybody in between those two groups those who are receiving their salaries from a church who don't have the ability to distance themselves and clear their headspace and do a sabbatical kind of investigation. Mm. And that's, that, that's the toughest group for me. Mm. And it's probably the majority, yeah. but you know, I'm open you, you get around too. you see what are the best ways to get people to rethink. But in my mm. experience, they, they really don't begin to rethink things until the pain of remaining as they are is greater than the pain of having to rethink their model. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that doesn't just mean economic pain. It could be any kind of pain, but that that's just an, uh, a formula of human transformation in general. Yeah. And I want you to unpack that a little bit more, that idea of pain. You started by saying, I'm encouraged by the amount of pain that's happening. I think I know <laughs> what you mean, <laughs> but unpack that a little bit more because I know, you know, part of the reason why we're doing this Monday morning podcast is knowing that Mondays are the toughest day of the week for pastors, right? I mean, mm -hmm. this is a hard day of recovery. Most people quit on a Monday. Most pastors have heart attacks on Monday. I mean, there's all sorts of statistics here about Mondays. So those are hard. Yeah. So we know that there are pastors longing for hope who are listening in here. So when they say, when you say you're encouraged about people experiencing pain, unpack that a little bit more. Well, I mean, part of my basic understanding of Christian faith is that all spiritual growth happens through pain and suffering. And there's pain that we don't choose, which we call a trial. And then there's pain we do choose, which we call a discipline. But it's all pain. It's all in one form or another, a death to self, a taking up of our cross. So when, when pain comes, when trials come, as James says, we should react with joy because it, God's using those things to develop and grow us. So the pain is not all bad. I and mean, we believe in a God who redeems pain and can even redeem evil for good. So we shouldn't run away and catastrophize when, when challenges come our way. Having said that, there's different kinds of pain that a church leader may well experience on a Monday. So when I was full-time in my church years ago, and most of my responsibility was teaching and preaching on Sundays at one or more of our sites, um, you know, eventually, after years of doing that, you get every pastor who preaches regularly has had this experience where either on Sunday afternoon or Monday morning, you have this gut check, like I am spending an enormous amount of my time and mental energy preparing to preach on Sundays. And what good is it really doing? <laughs> Does it make a difference? <laughs> Does it make a difference? And absolutely, it can make a difference. No mm. doubt the Holy Spirit uses even the flawed wisdom that comes out of our mouths at the pulpit. Yeah. Um, and no doubt uses the word to affect people. But is it the is it the best utilization of my time and energy? Mm. In other words, is it worth spending 20 hours a week on my sermon? Or yeah. would it the spirit used it just as powerfully if I spent 10 or five hours mm. doing it? And mm. so you have that I've had that gut check numerous times. And, yeah. and that's a good thing because at the end of the day, as pastors and shepherds, 
while we can't control the outcomes necessarily, we are accountable to the Lord to faithfully deploy the gifts he's given us mm. to help his people grow and commune with him and, and follow their own callings in the world. And I, as a preacher, I've had significant doubts about the model that we're employing mm. in its in the stewardship of our resources. Yeah. Is that the right way to do it? So that's one example of angst. On another level, uh, perhaps a deeper level, uh, the way in which we do church, at least in a lot of Protestant evangelical mm. America, it's very much based on assumptions that came out of the Reformation. And those mm. assumptions were heavily biased toward knowledge as the primary ingredient for transformation. Mm. That if you just have enough yeah. Bible knowledge, doctrinal knowledge, truth, your life will be transformed. And a pastor is usually at the heart of that, right? They've gone to seminary, they read the books, they study the scripture, they know the theology, they prepare the sermons. We even call their we, office a study. Right. I mean, exactly. <laughs> right. And there's a lot of good in that. I mean, I'm sitting in front of a wall, a wall of books right now and yeah. I, I, I write books. I love that stuff. But at some point you gain enough experience and wisdom to realize that I have a ton of knowledge and I'm still a mess. Mm, mm. And my spouse tells me that and my kids tell me <laughs> that and my closest relationship. And, and you begin to second guess the very model of spiritual formation that you've devoted your life to. And that's not a bad thing. Because it then makes us rethink, well, what am I really passing on to the people I'm trying to lead? So whether it's preaching or even the whole model of spiritual formation, that kind of pain and angst should make us reinvestigate our own way of growing in our faith and then what we are doing in our churches. Um, and that doesn't even touch on the, another level, which is the societal, cultural dynamics of the mission field, the people, what are they coming into the church with? How do we meet them where they are? How do we grow? That's a whole nother piece of the puzzle. But all of that should be creating angst and anxiety and, and stress and pain that hopefully, when prayerfully brought before the Lord, can, can birth new ways of thinking and acting and living. One of the things that I love about you is your you are so good at being, you have a keen and perceptive way of, in both a pastoral and prophetic way, talking about the good and also addressing, and even in uncomfortable ways, what we need to be thinking about. You also are good at the future. I mean, you wrote a book called Futureville, but you have this, you know, you and your background in terms of, um, you know, your your father immigrated to the United States from India, and um, I think you had traveled to, you know, 30 countries and five continents or something like that. Uh, you know, over a period of time um, before you even went to college. So you've got this sort of intercultural, multicultural understanding. What are you seeing as you think about the future? And then as you think about um, even the, the multi-ethnic nature of the church, whether it's globally or even in North America, what are you seeing that out in the horizon we need to pay attention to? Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's a big question. I, what comes to mind are three Three immediate challenges. One is um, the credibility of the faith. And what I mean by that is, when I was a college student, and maybe we're about the same age, so you may have experienced this as well. When I was a college student, if somebody wasn't a Christian, they they probably weren't a Christian because they didn't want to submit to the ethical expectations of the Christian faith. But for the most part, they respected people who were Christians. And, and that meant there's a, a model of uh, kind of conversion or when people make dramatic changes in the, their perspective, worldview, Jonathan hates written about this. He says it begins with actually respecting the people who represent that other idea. Then secondly, you have to actually want that 
new idea to be true. And then third, you will find the proof or evidences that verify it. So when I would do apologetics kind of debates or whatever as a college student, I would encounter students who had res- general respect for Christianity. And it w- but if they didn't want it to be true, like if they didn't want to abide by the sexual ethics of Christian faith or whatever, then they would find every reason not to believe it. But if, if they found a compelling and beautiful vision of Jesus, they would come up with all kinds of reasons why it is true. Mm. I bring all that up because the first challenge I think we're up against isn't that, uh, is that people don't want Christianity to be true. They're not open to the arguments that it is true because first and foremost, they don't respect the people who mm. identify themselves mm. as Christians. That is a huge, huge barrier. And it isn't because individual Christians are crummy people. I think most of them are are pretty good people. It's that the way Christianity is being represented broadly in our culture is is just disgusting. So there are many parts of the country today, especially urban, younger parts of the country, where if you tell somebody you're an evangelical Christian, you might as well tell them you're a member of Al-Qaeda. Yeah, yeah. Like it's that level of they can't even conceive of it being true. So that that creates an entirely different paradigm for doing ministry and evangelism and all that. So that's number one. Number two is technology. And this relates to the preaching thing I was mentioning earlier. The model of church that most of us employ dates back to the Protestant Reformation when there was a high growing demand for engagement with scripture and a low supply. Mm. And so you'd show up on Sunday because the most educated guy in town was the pastor and he would teach you the Bible and the knowledge you thought would transform your life. That's been the model for 500 years. Well, today we have the opposite dynamics where demand for Bible engagement is plummeting, even among Christians, and there's an oversupply of access to it. You can get Bibles everywhere. You can get Bible podcasts and sermons anywhere on any device, anytime you want. So why should people show up on Sunday morning to hear you preach it? That kind of um, supply and demand reversal that technology is causing today means we have to rethink what we're doing when we gather as mm. churches, why we gather, how we utilize our spaces. What's People still need Bible teaching, but what's the best way to get it to them? How do we adapt to that reality? And that's what I mean by very few churches, I think, are really wrestling with that basic model yeah. because it affects yeah. their economic model. Sure, sure. So that's number two. And then number three you mentioned is kind of that pluralistic diverse, globalized reality that, um, you know, church, churches remain the most homogenous communities in America. And Martin Luther King and Billy Graham actually both said that 11 o'clock Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. And that, that used to be okay. I think you could get away with that 15, 20, 30 years ago. Increasingly as our schools, as our institutions, as our corporate boardrooms, goodness, even as Congress becomes more diverse, for the church to remain a homogenous community is just going to to kill its witness. So we have to figure out how do we become a community that actually reflects the diversity of the kingdom of God in our communities. Obviously, if you're in an environment where 95% of the people are African-American, you're not expected to have you know, a diverse church or 95% white or whatever. But that's another huge barrier that we have to deal with. And unfortunately, in a lot of our evangelical communities, at least white evangelical communities, they're not preaching a gospel that requires that level of of um, overcoming of ethnic differences. It's just not a factor, despite being a massive theme throughout the New Testament. So we got to rethink our theology around this stuff and see what we've overlooked. Mm. Those three, three things are great. The second one, um, 
And I was thinking about this whole idea of like how educational models, especially in high schools, are now going to the reverse classroom idea, right? Where you mm-hmm. go home and watch lectures and then you come in to school to do lab work, no lectures whatsoever. And I've often right. wondered what if the reverse classroom idea was adopted by churches? How formed would we be? But as you said, what would that do to the economic model of Church Inc.? Right. You know? And that's exactly, I think you're familiar with Aaron Nequist and what they did with the practice. Yeah. That yeah. was essentially the idea is we're going to go home and study stuff and we're going to come back and figure out how to practice it together. And in the irony in all of that is the church with the, with the sermon and the expert pastor was actually what gave birth to the university and the college and the lecture in, in Northern and Western Europe, which then led to modern ideas of education. But now educators are figuring out that because of technology, we can change this model again. And the church is the one who's slow to pick up on it. So, you know, universities and schools, many of them anyway, have an economic incentive to figure out the right way to train and educate people in our society. And the church is the most reluctant because unfortunately we have sanctified or, or baptized a particular model, forgetting that number one, that model didn't exist prior to 500 years ago. And two, the methods are not determined in the New Testament. You know, we, we've always changed them as, as a missionary movement. We have changed them depending on the circumstances of our mission field. But it's really, really hard to convince people that church is not listening to somebody lecture from the Bible for 30 to 40 minutes. And it's, until we're able to let go of that, I, I don't know if we're going to really see, if we're going to be positioned to execute our means in the age. Yeah. You know, someone was mentioning that the only t- other place in our culture where you'd get 30 to 40 minute lectures outside of like a, like a classroom setting would be comedians. That where are there <laughs> yeah. other spaces in our culture where we would have somebody stand up and speak for 30 to 40 minutes and, yeah. you know, and then that gets back to what you were feeling that, that moment on Sunday afternoon or Monday, like I'm putting 20 hours in, like how, what kind of difference is this making? So I know some of these are Again, I, what I love about you is the way you challenge with this prophetic voice, not in a in an angry way, but in a really helpful but uncomfortably squirmy kind of way of what we need. Um, but I also want to ask you, like, what what you know? Think you remember what it's like being a pastor and how hard it is, and those Mondays where you just go, "Should I keep doing this?" Like, if you had the opportunity for I don't know two or three minutes to speak to just that discouraged pastor, what would you want to say to him or her? What kind of hope would you want them to be reminded of? That's a great question. Um, probably the number one thing would be to remind them that their value is not rooted in their effectiveness. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about his calling to to bring the gospel, to plant the seed of the gospel in Corinth. And he talked about Apollos came and he watered that seed, but ultimately it's God who causes the growth. The outcomes, in other words, belong to the Lord. Uh, It doesn't mean we aren't accountable or must be faithful to the work he's given us to do. We, We should be faithful in that. But our value is not rooted in the outcomes because the outcomes are beyond our control. Our value is rooted in the fact that we belong to the Lord, we're his daughter or his son. And that needs to, that, being rooted in that truth can free us from an awful lot of self-condemnation as well as self-congratulations. <laughs> sure, for, both for sides. Things that, when they go well. <laughs> um, one of the things that helped 
me as a, as a younger leader was, I don't know how many times I'd read the story of Jesus baptism and it's, it's a great story, but it never occurred to me until somebody pointed it out that when, when the father spoke and said, this is my beloved son, that's before Jesus had done anything. Mm, mm. He, he hadn't called the disciple. He hadn't preached a sermon. He hadn't performed a miracle. He hadn't uh, overcome temptation in the wilderness. Mm. He hadn't done obviously the cross or nothing at that point. And yet, I think the the model is really important that God's love and his his embrace comes first and out of that flows ministry. Mm. Henry Nouwen wrote about this beautifully. Yeah. And so for a church leader who's feeling discouraged or the outcomes aren't what they want or that they feel ineffective part of the problem is you're you're probably attaching too much of your own value and significance to the outcomes and you need to take a step back and remember what what's really true of you and what really matters. And the Lord doesn't need you. He can accomplish this stuff fine without you. So breathe a little bit. Um, so that, that would probably be the single biggest thing I would want a leader to remember. Uh, that's great. And I love how you unpack that in immeasurable. Uh, that's you and I've talked. It's one of the reasons why I required that for uh, one of my seminary classes that I taught to, to, for that. And we'll, we want to, we always end these podcasts with a few questions and recommendations for resources for people to go. And so immeasurable is going to be one of those that we want to recommend to our listeners. Just give us a, as we end here, just two or three minute snapshot of immeasurable, why you wrote it, what was the burden behind it? And what are you hoping pastors when they read it, they really get out of, out of immeasurable? Uh, thanks. Yeah. The, the book was kind of a, um, a collection of things I'd written over the years, sermons I'd preached that were around the theme of ministry. And when I started rereading all the stuff that I had written and this, my ideas around this, the, the, the theme kind of came forward that a lot of the way we approach ministry, at least in a North American context, is a mechanical vision. It's kind of an industrial vision of we're going to mass produce disciples. And we as pastors are managers of these machines that we call churches or ministries. And immeasurable really was written to say, hey, there's a bigger mystery going on here. There's a mystery that we're called into. It, things are beyond our control. And when we grasp that, it it changes the way we view the people we minister to. It changes the way we view the organizations we're a part of. And it changes the way we view ourselves and our relationship with the Lord. And one of the metaphors I use early in the book is a lot of the way the American church thinks about ministry. Um, it, it's like, going to a tanning salon where, <laughs> you know, you go down the local strip mall, there's a tanning salon, you go in there and you, you, you bake under these artificial sun rays in, in a tanning bed somewhere and, and you come out and it can be scheduled and planned and orchestrated and all that. Whereas the way ministry is kind of presented in scripture, it, it is the, the gracious, delightful, uh, rapture of standing in a, in an open field under the sun mm. that, the clouds break and they're like, you can't plan that. You can't control that. It is, it is beyond you, but it is glorious. And so the book is really trying to juxtapose the, the tanning bed versus the, the natural sunlight kind of approach to ministry and, and how one destroys us both as, as Christians and as leaders and the other gives us real life. 
and makes us also look very orange as Christians, yeah. and we don't want that. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, valuable I, I have resource. Sort of a genetic tan, so I don't worry about it. <laughs> it's a valuable resource, as as we're also going to put with in there as well, knowing that that's just. Uh, I love that preposition. I mean, I think that's so much the heart of what we're trying to do here with Monday Morning Pastor. It's not what we do for God. It's not what we do to God or to our people. But it's to be in a with God kind of life and relationship. So, anyway, Sky, grateful to call you a friend. Thanks for the opportunity uh, to hop on here and uh, to give us your time. And uh, yeah, thanks for all that you're doing, even to contributing to helping pastors be sharpened, but also to shepherd them through the process too. So, thanks for being well, on. I love the work you guys do. So, anytime, I, I appreciate it. Mm, thanks so much, man. What a great conversation with Sky. I love talking with that guy. Uh, so many good things coming out of that. Doug, I'm really curious. What what are some things that stuck out to you with what Sky shared? Um, there's so much, but for me, I, I really was intrigued by how he talked about how he was encouraged by the pain, strife, and struggle <laughs> that he is seeing within the church at the moment. Yeah. At the time, I thought, what? What yeah. is this about? <laughs> yeah. It's like, this is a real downer. Thanks, man. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, I, I really felt encouraged by that because it's 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 this idea that our pain is not wasted. The struggle is not wasted. And, and there's mm. this beautiful invitation to see something grow mm. out of that. And I feel like for... The, for where the church in North America is right now, uh, it is an invitation to mm. grow. It's an invitation to mm. say, Lord, what might you want to form in us through this difficult season yeah. of not being... Uh, <laughs> Not even being really liked in the culture, but yeah. recognizing that we're really not at a place of power at all. And and I, I believe that's a good thing for the church. Yeah. Something I heard Dave Gibbons say years ago that has stuck with me, he said, scarcity brings clarity. <laughs> mm. And uh, man, when resources are scarce or uh, we feel like we're in the vast minority, it, it just clarifies what is most important to us. And I wonder if that's kind of what Sky was getting at um, yeah. in what he was sharing. So. Yeah, what else? What else is rolling around your yeah, head and heart? Uh, he, when he talked about the three challenges, he said the the credibility of faith, uh, technology, and pluralistic diversity in a global world. Mm. Um, I, you know, just realizing that these are the challenges the church is facing, and um, I, I was really just struck with the idea of like we have to help change this narrative of of, mm. of who we are and what it means to have. Uh, to follow Jesus in the culture in which we live. And and it, it's this beautiful opportunity that we have to change the narrative. Mm. I feel like the narrative right now that's sort of prevalent amongst us is Christians are untrustworthy people. Mm. Uh, they're hateful and they're bigoted. Mm. And I feel like we now have an opportunity to begin to see that um, change or shift and the ways that we get about that. Like I just felt really encouraged by kind of putting some names to these things that I felt, but I didn't uh, necessarily have opportunities or, or vocabulary to really think about that. And even looking at technology um, as the way that it, it really shapes and forms us and how do we utilize that to help people to grow in their faith and, and just realizing as well, um, noticing that we're, we're part of a global church. It mm. can't just be the church in North America, but how what we do as North American Christians impacts the rest of the world and how what the rest of the world does in the church needs to impact the way that we are thinking through our faith yeah. in North America. Yeah, there's a, a pastor uh, down in Texas by the name of Bob Roberts Jr. And uh, one of the things that that he, he he made up a word, a portmanteau, hmm. uh, where you take two words and put them together and create this cool word, new cool word. And a, this portmanteau was the word glocal, that we need wow. to think both local and global. 
And when we have a church that is able to think of both, that we think locally. And I think that's what I love about Sky, right? He's, he's rooted in America. This is culture. And yet at the same time, it's not his culture. I mean, you yeah. know, he, his, his family's from, from India, um, but he also has traveled internationally. Um, you know, his, his undergrad and his grad studies were mm. in other world religions. And so yeah. he's got a global he mindset and he's both pastoral and prophetic at the same time. So he sort of lives in these overlapping worlds, which is what I love about him. He's, he's a locally minded yeah. Christian thinker that helps me think in new ways to go, huh? Yeah. We can't be so America centric yeah. in our thinking. It, I, I think I've heard you use this expression before. It's almost like getting up to 30,000 feet mm-hmm. and then looking mm-hmm. down to say, whoa, there's a lot bigger landscape than what I anticipated. This mountain looked really big, but when I get higher and I get up higher, the perspective changes and that helps me to see new routes, new paths, new ways to move forward up this particular hill or whatever it is that we're trying to work through. Yeah. I think the only other thing that I would like was kind of one of these mind blowing quotes that he said is his pain uh, is something that we pain we don't choose is a trial and pain that we do choose is a discipline yeah that that has just rattled in my head huh. um and i feel like it's going to be stuck in there for quite some time and even just naming pain as yeah. a way of of helping me to see what the lord might be up to in those places yeah so you know we always want to leave questions uh, and resources for individuals. Um, so a couple of questions, I mean, even off of that, that idea, give that quote one more time. Yeah. So I think that leads into our questions. Well, yeah. pain we don't choose is a trial mm. and pain we do choose is a discipline. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the questions we want to challenge our listeners with here uh, today are what are those trials that you're experiencing currently? Mm. Sort of the whole, what's in our control, what's not in our control, right? So what are those things happening to us that we didn't choose that have been chosen for us that are happening to us right now. Um, how are we stewarding those? Mm. What are those? Can we name those? As you mentioned, Doug, can yeah. we just name what those are? Number one, they could be capital T trials, lowercase yeah. T, but what are those things? Number one, just to be aware of as pastors. And the second one, where are we choosing voluntarily to enter into that pain and struggle in discipline? What are those disciplines that we are regularly engaged in? Or what could be one discipline that we enter into, not out of uh, works righteousness, not out of legalism, but out of wanting to have a more surround sound understanding and listening to what Jesus is up to in the world. Mm. Um, I need to ask myself that regularly. What are the trials and what are the disciplines either I have experienced or am or could enter into in the future? Yeah. Yeah, and I would say maybe maybe the last question to kind of wrestle with or another question to wrestle with would be what are you seeing in the culture that surrounds you? Mm, and mm. just to learn to be a little bit more to to get up out above the everyday life of the church pastor but to say what's happening in my town? Huh. Like what what are on the bulletin boards and just to become a good archaeologist or mm, a cultural cultivator of ec- understanding what's actually happening in the in the world around us. Um, and, and even recognizing how that may lead us to spaces of prayer um, and to spaces of seeing Jesus show up really big in our, in our communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's leave, uh, let's leave with some resources here. Certainly want to mention Sky's book, his most, he's several books, but his most recent book is called Immeasurable, Reflections on the Soul of Ministry in the Age of Church, Inc. Um, I've read all of Sky's things. In fact, he asked me to do an endorsement for this book. I said in the endorsement, this is the best book that Sky has written 
thus far. Mm. Uh, so much so, I required um, the class that I teach, the seminary class that I teach, my students were required to read this, wondered how they would embrace this. They loved reading through the book. No surprise, but uh, I highly recommend this to pastors. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. And I think one thing too is uh, I after the interview, we chatted with Sky for just a few minutes. This is another just couple names. I asked Sky, who are some people who are really getting this cultural stuff and, and seeing it in a bigger picture? Mm. Um, he mentioned a couple names, John Tyson, Dave Gibbons, Francis Chan, and the beautiful guys in Portland uh, doing the Bible Project. Yeah. How they're seeing culture from a different perspective and able to enter into it and just um, almost like they're people of peace in the mm. midst of the culture. Yeah, the the Bible Project, my goodness, like, you know, we started to watch these thinking the kids would love them, but <laughs> yeah. then you realize, yeah. oh my gosh, as an adult, I've read the Bible many times, but this is amazing. And as a pastor, I don't need to preach on Sunday. I think I'm just going to show this video <laughs> and then sit down because <laughs> it's so good and they're yeah. all free. Yeah. They're all on their website, jointhebibleproject.com.org. Um, but if you just go onto YouTube and type in the Bible Project, all of the videos are free. That's yeah. the rule. They say, use it. In whatever setting you want, the only thing we ask is you don't charge for it. Like, what a vision. Yeah. I just love that. Public domain, beautiful thing. Well, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Monday Morning Pastor. Check out our show notes for the questions and the resources, as well as a way to connect with us. We would love to hear from you. Pastors, may you be reminded that you have been given permission to be a person. You are loved, not by what you do or by how well you do it. You are loved for who you are, and more importantly,